Go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 9 this morning. Acts chapter 9. Now, you may remember that in our introduction to Acts, I actually proposed that Luke used the words of Jesus at his ascension as an outline for the book. Chapter 1, verse 8, he says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And we see that that actually becomes the outline for the book of Acts. Chapters 1 through 7 focuses on the establishment of the church in Jerusalem and involves primarily working among the Jews. Chapters 8 through 12 detail the expansion of the church in Jerusalem, but then it involves um, kind of the beginnings of reaching out to Gentile territory. It begins with the stoning of Stephen, scattering Christians from Jerusalem with the persecution under Saul, and then the ministry of Philip. And that kind of focuses on that area of Samaria and Judea, kind of branching out from Jerusalem, just as Jesus said. And then chapters 13 through 28 reveal how the Lord used Paul and the gospel to the Gentiles, taking the gospel out to the remotest parts of the earth. So that's kind of the outline for the book of Acts. The middle section is kind of what we're into right now, chapters 8 through 12. And it details the expansion of the church out into Judea and Samaria and the beginnings of Gentile territory. It's kind of interesting, though, as you look at it, the way that this middle section is kind of structured. Uh, Luke begins with Philip's ministry in Samaria. Then he records the conversion of Saul, the Apostle Paul, in the beginnings of his ministry. But then it flips back. It's almost like it abandons Paul or Saul and goes back to then Peter. So it's kind of you know moving through Jerusalem, out, starts to go out into Samaria, sees the conversion of Saul, and at that point we would expect that it's now going to move on to the Gentiles, but Luke instead flips back to Peter. And he then spends the next three and a half chapters dealing with Peter. And then he returns back to Saul or Paul. And so the question is, why does he do that? Well, it's because this sort of serves as a transition. We see something happening here. We're transitioning from primarily Jerusalem to the region outside of Jerusalem and on into Gentiles. But we're also transitioning from the ministry of Peter and John and James and some of the apostles. We're moving from that ministry to sort of focus now on Paul. And so he kind of, what Luke does is he sort of blends the two, if you will, and sort of slowly, kind of gradually moves us from Peter to Paul, from Jerusalem out to the Gentiles. And so he kind of, you know, spends a little bit of time introducing us to Saul to tell us where he's going, but then comes back to Peter to show us sort of the end. And it's not really the end of Peter's ministry, it's the end of what he records as Peter's ministry. Peter continues to minister, obviously, but he's making this transition. So that's kind of where we're at today, and so the focus of the passage today is is on Peter, if you will. In the passage today, we actually see him do two miraculous things. The first one is he heals this paralyzed man named Aeneas, And then the second, he raises a young woman named Tabitha from the dead. Now what makes this actually unique here is that unlike most of the healing miracles in the book of Acts, these focus on Christians. These two individuals are saved. Most of the healings we see take place among the unsaved. And so these are somewhat unique. One of the things I texted Dustin about last night was the struggle I had with working through this and coming up with a practical application of it. Sometimes the text screams the practical application, especially epistles. You get into epistles, 
And the author just tells you what to do with it. When it comes to narrative, sometimes that's a little more difficult. And um, so as we go through this passage today, in some respects, um, we'll have to um, think through what this means in terms of how we might apply it because really what we're going to see is simply Peter performed two miracles. And so we're going to go ahead and walk through that. Let's first off look at this healing of Aeneas. Verses 33 through 35. Let's start by reading chapter 9, verse 32. Now, as Peter was traveling through all those regions, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Now, those parts is actually defined for us in verse 31. We see that Peter had actually been traveling through Samaria and Galilee. He had gone on a trip there, if you remember, when Philip was doing his ministry. He had seen a number of Samaritans and others come to Christ. And you remember, they didn't receive the Holy Spirit immediately. It was out of the ordinary. Normally, when somebody would come to Christ, they received the Holy Spirit. But there was a delay, and there's a reason for that delay. And if you remember, what happens is the apostles hear about the Samaritans coming to the Lord. And so they send Peter down. And Peter actually begins to lay hands on them, and they received the Spirit at that point. And it was a way of confirming that the Lord had gone to an outside group, because for the Jews, they didn't accept the Samaritans as part of God's people. And the thought of him pouring out his Spirit on those outsiders, those non-Jews, was remarkable. And so one of the reasons why there was this delay, and we also see it later with Gentiles, where the Spirit is, is somewhat delayed, if you will, um, What we see is that Peter becomes a witness to that and is able to go back to the apostles and say, I witnessed the Spirit, God pouring out His people on the Samaritans. He's gone to the Samaritans too. They're part of God's family now. And so Peter is probably returning from that trip now. He's heading back up to Jerusalem. Lydda was actually the capital city of what's called an administrative district for the Romans. It's about 25 miles from Jerusalem. It was primarily a Jewish area, but it had a heavily... Um, Greek influence to it. So he's probably, like I said, likely on his way back and he he decides to do something by going and visiting churches and to encourage churches. Now, we know that much of the activity we focused on so far was in uh, evangelism, witnessing, seeing people brought to Christ. And now we see that some of those churches have been established and Peter is deciding to stop by now and encourage some of those believers. And so he stops by Lydda. Now Luke doesn't tell us why there's a church established there at Lydda. The only thing we can assume is that maybe it was a result of Philip's ministry. But it would have been a fairly young church. And so while he's at Lydda, we're told here in the text, verse 33, that he actually meets a man there named Aeneas. Look at verse 33. There he found a man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. Now, Luke doesn't specifically tell us that Aeneas is a believer, but we can assume he is because he's included in the group of what he refers to in verse 32 as the saints. So we're led to assume that he's a believer. He's part of the church. Now, we're told here in the text that he was bedridden. We're told he was bedridden for eight years. Now, when you think of that word bedridden, what comes to mind? The first thing that comes to mind for me, I've known some people who have been bedridden, is somebody basically in bed, 
with a comfortable mattress, maybe one of those beds that can elevate and you can raise the legs and raise the back and keep them comfortable, right? And you have somebody who comes in and maybe helps them rotate from left to right so they don't get the bed sores. But, you know, a a bed of some kind with some nice sheets, maybe some pillows to prop them up. Maybe the person is watching TV, playing on their iPad or their phone, right? We do the best we can today when people are bedridden to keep them comfortable. That is not at all what this man was facing. The word bedridden here is more literally the phrase he was confined to a mattress, and even that word mattress is unlikely. It was more likely a pallet or a pad, and it was simply laid on the ground. Physical beds were not something that was common in that first century for the average person. In fact, beds were primarily reserved for the more wealthy. So when you see the word bed in the scriptures, it's usually just a mattress or a mat, pallet, laid on the ground. I just recently have been working on remodeling my bathroom and I laid down a vinyl plank flooring. Most homes during that first century would have had dirt floors or old wooden floors, not even the nice floor that I have in my bathroom. And so here this man is, he's laying on a mallet, uh, a pallet, or a pad that's laid down on the floor, and he's confined there. The word translated paralyzed implies more than simply not being able to walk. Remember the lame man that Peter healed in, the, in uh, Acts chapter 3? He was a man who couldn't walk, but he wasn't paralyzed. He could still move, apparently, parts of his body and could sit there and beg for alms, but he just couldn't walk. That's not the picture here. This man, it wasn't just that he couldn't walk, he was actually paralyzed. The description that's given here is similar to the paralyzed man in Luke 5. Remember the man in Luke 5? His buddies bring him, can't get in to see Jesus, so they go up to the roof, they cut a hole in the roof and drop him down. Same language is used. This was a man who was confined to a pallet because he couldn't move on his own. Paralyzed. What we might think is likely maybe he had had a stroke or maybe there's something else to where he couldn't move his body on his own. It doesn't tell us that he's paralyzed from the, the neck down or the waist down, but he's confined, he can't move, but it's not just that he can't walk, he can't care for himself. He's now pretty much stuck, probably lying down, probably can't sit up on his own. So he's on a mat, on the ground, the floor. Every time somebody were to talk to him, he'd have to look up at them, or they'd have to squat down to talk to him. It's needless to say here that life for Aeneas was probably fairly unpleasant, and it had been so, we're told, for at least eight years. But that all changed when Peter showed up. Look at verse 34. Peter said to him, Aeneas... Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. So immediately, he got up. We're not told what prompted Peter to heal Aeneas, but he does. And like he did the lame beggar, immediately he gives credit to the one who did the healing. Peter doesn't take credit for this. He immediately identifies the real source of the healing is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And as proof of that healing, Peter says, Stand up. Arise! You'll see that the phrase there that's in most of your Bibles is also, Make your bed. I had an interesting conversation with my brother last night. 
talking about the practical application of this, and I kind of mentioned to him, I'm just kind of struggling with this a little bit. The practical application side of me goes, well, I don't know. It tells you right there. He told him to get up and make his bed. Maybe you ought to tell your church they need to start making their bed. Good Christians make their bed. Good observation. But what's interesting about that phrase is that it, there's no word bed in the text. If you, if you want to get real technical or real literal with the text, Peter basically says, Aride and spread, or arise and furnish for yourself. It's a rather obscure statement. What does he mean? Stand up, furnish for yourself. Most commentaries suggest that it should be interpreted um, in any number of ways. There's no consensus to it. Usually when you see that, it's because it's a very difficult and obscure phrase. They haven't been able to find it externally to the scriptures. They haven't been able to find something like that in idioms used at the time. So the question here is, what is Peter saying to him when he tells him to stand up? I'm going to propose to you that rather than saying, get up and make your bed. Good Christians make their bed, as my brother suggested. I suspect, because of the word furnish there, can also be the idea of caring for one. I suspect that what he's telling Peter here is, stand up, you can care for yourself now. You don't need to be confined to the bed, because you can care for your... Jesus has healed you. So stand up, you can care for yourself. That's my suspicion. I would say that fits the text and what we know of Christ, but... We want to accept it as stand up and make your bed. Some scholars have argued, well, by telling him to make his bed means he didn't need his bed anymore. Well, he still needs to sleep. But regardless, the idea here is that Jesus Christ raised him from his mat, removed the paralysis, and he did it immediately. In fact, the proof of that is the fact that he does. He stands up. There is complete and immediate healing. This wasn't, Peter had to touch him three or four times, or he kind of got up and he was a little unstable. The man was able to stand up. It's a miraculous thing. Now what's interesting about this to me is that this healing was not a public healing like so many others. You notice that in the book of Acts, is generally the healings are public, they're out there, people see them. But this was a private. In fact, as far as we know, nobody else was in the room there with them. It was just Peter and Aeneas. It was private. But, nonetheless, it had a huge evangelistic impact. Look at verse 35. And all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, Sharon is actually the, the plain that's along the Mediterranean coast. It's a fairly large area. And what Peter tells us is that when people saw Ananias or Aeneas walking around, it was a remarkable thing. And as a result, it led not just to people in Lydda itself coming to know the Lord, but people throughout that plain. This was a wild and crazy thing. It was unusual to see somebody who was lame for such a long time walk. So all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and it says they turned to the Lord. So even this private healing that took place had a huge evangelistic impact. Hold on to that. Keep that in the palm of your hand as we move on, because it will come in handy later when we start talking about the practical application for this.
Let's move on to the second thing that happens. It's even more remarkable. The raising of Tabitha. The second miraculous event in our passage involves this amazing female disciple. Her name is Tabitha. Look at verse 36. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. How many of the kids would love that name? When I was a kid growing up, Dork was not a thing you want to be called, but her Greek name is Dorcas. This woman was, a, was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. So Luke introduces us to this other believer named Tabitha. She's from Joppa, which is on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. It's about 10 miles from Lydda. Well, we had to speculate a little bit about Aeneas, about his salvation. We had to use the context to help us understand that he was a believer. Luke just comes right out and tells us here that she's a disciple. So we know she's a Christian. Her works and her deeds are also further evidence of this. She was a godly woman who reflected Christ. Notice he says, this woman was abounding with kindness and charity. Not only that, but this was something she did continually, Luke tells us. She was a remarkable woman. Later in the passage, we learn that she made tunics and garments for others, particularly widows. And we know how important that is to Christ. Even the book of James demonstrates that true religion is to care for widows and orphans. We've already seen in the book of Acts that there was some conflict among, about taking care of the widows and they made sure that they came together and put something in place to take care of the widows. You look in the Old Testament, that was something that was demanded of the Jews, that they care for widows and orphans. And so here this woman is, living this out. But unfortunately then, tragedy struck. Look at verse 37. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. Just recently, a friend of mine posted an obituary for, I'll refer to her as a friend. When I was in seminary, there was a young woman that I had met. She had um, gone to college out, to a Christian college out in Missouri. I don't remember why she had moved to Warsaw, Indiana, a little tiny town where Grace College was. She wasn't there to go to school. I lived in a trailer park with, with my roommate, and she lived just, I think, two or three doors down. I think she was probably, I think she was about my age, maybe a year younger than me at the time. Her name was Christy. She was a remarkable young lady. She had a beautiful voice. What I remember about her is um, she could whip up anything from nothing, and it was delicious. She was known to be a great cook. In fact, she walked over to our house one time, knocked our trailer, knocked on the door, and, and so Mark and I invited her in, and she, all, she, she just kind of walked past us. She went to the refrigerator. She said, what do you guys have to eat? I'm hungry. Two single guys, and we cooked. We were, we were good guys. We're like, I don't know. What are you looking for? She's like, I, just, I want dessert of some kind. We're like, we don't even bake dessert. We buy stuff. She's like, well, what's it? And she found some apples that we had. And then she found, I think, some flour in the cupboards and butter in the refrigerator. And she's digging it for it. And we're like, what is she doing? She's like, I'm going to make you guys some dessert. I'm hungry. And she whipped up this apple dessert that was astounding. I still remember it to this day. And when we asked her, well, where'd you get the recipe? And she's like, I had no recipe. I just made it up with what you had. That's what she, so that's what I remember about Christy. Recently she just died. This is what the obituary said. And it reminds me, this is why I read it, it reminds me of Tabitha. It read like this. Christy spent all of her life taking care of others, including fostering mentally and physically challenged adults. It's interesting, I remember that about her. 
She was like a mother to a man named Ted who lived with her and her husband for 19 years until his death at 82 last year. She also was a godmother to a special little girl named Emma. Her home was always open. Her generous heart and loving care soothed and uplifted so many. Christy was always ready for, uh, with delicious food. She had a listening ear. Her warm hugs were cherished by all who received one, and babies loved to snuggle with Aunt Christy. Speaking ill of anyone was not permissible in her presence. She always had something positive to say. She encouraged everyone. She was well known for her beautiful, soulful voice and sang in college and in her church. She loved to make things beautiful. She enjoyed flowers and gardening, sewing and crafts. Many a great niece, nephew, and other little ones treasured their embroidered pillows and quilts that she made with her loving touch. Many weddings, vacation, Bible schools, children's choirs, women's retreats, church events, and holidays were benefited from her handmade decorations. It reminds me a lot of the way Tabitha is described here, doing things for other people, using her gifts and her talents, especially baking or, or making gifts and things. And here this Tabitha, we're told, made things, tunics and that, for the widows to help care for them. That's an expression of Christ. And so everything we see here about Tabitha is that she was a devoted, God-fearing Christian who loved to minister to other people. Why would the Lord take her life? We're not really told, but that's what happens. So tragedy strikes. All those around her, we find, mourn. They're in tears. Well, after learning that Peter was nearby, two men go to Lydda to persuade him to come to Joppa. Look at verse 38. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, do not delay in coming to us. Now Luke doesn't tell us why they wanted Peter to come to Joppa. There's some clues in the text. The first is that they washed Tabitha's body But curiously, there's no mention of anointing it for burial, which would have been normal. So they wash her body, but they don't prepare it for burial. That's our first clue. It's a little unusual. The second clue is that they placed her body in the upper room of the house. The reason that's unusual is because normally the dead were buried on the same day. They would wash the body, they would anoint it, and then they would take it out and they would bury it. These people don't do that. Instead, they take her body, they wash it, they don't prepare for burial, they take it and they put it in the upper room of the house, which was even unusual because normally, for any type of viewing of sorts, they would put it in the main floor. What are these men, or these people thinking? These things, well, let me finish one other one. When they go to Peter, notice they say, do not delay to come to us. There's an urgency there. They're expecting Peter to come back and do something. What would Peter do with a dead body? There's no evidence in the scriptures that Peter had raised anybody from the dead prior to this. He had healed. He had a reputation, obviously, for that. But nothing in the text, nothing prior to that, indicates that Peter was known for raising the dead. But yet, somehow, these people... The things that we see here suggest that they believed Peter could come and raise Tabitha from the dead. Now there are instances in the Old Testament where the dead were raised. Maybe that's where they got the idea from. In fact, what's interesting is Elijah raised the widow's son in 1 Kings. Elisha raised the 
Shunammite woman's son. And what's interesting about both of those is they place the dead in the upper room. It's possible these men were thinking of those things. We also know that Jesus obviously raised from the dead and they had likely heard of that as well. And if Jesus could raise from the dead, maybe Peter could too. So in all likelihood, the text seems to suggest that these people believed that by bringing Peter, that he could raise Tabitha from the dead. That's faith. Especially if they had never witnessed it themselves. So Peter, he's obviously moved. Look at verse 39. So Peter arose and went with them. When he arrived, they brought him into the upper room and all the widows stood beside him. They were weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. They were experiencing this tremendous loss of this godly woman. They were weeping, they were mourning, they were in tears. So Peter was moved himself. And then something miraculous happens. Peter raises Tabitha from the dead. Look at verses 40 and 41. But Peter sent them all out of, the, out of the room, or sent them all away. He knelt down and he prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and he raised her up. And calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. It's interesting as you look at this, the first thing that I kind of notice here is this sense of humble reliance that Peter shows on God as this miraculous thing happens. You know, it says that he kneels down and prays. He didn't just walk in and, all right, stand up, kneels down next to her body and begins to pray. Who's the source of the healing here? The Lord. Quite clearly. Once again, just like we saw with Aeneas, it points to the true source of the miracle that's about to take place. Notice Peter, too, sends others out of the room. This isn't a show. I mean, what better way to show the power of God in himself but to, hey, why don't you guys all come in? All stand around here. Let's have a big rally and see if we can... You know, praise God and rate. No, he sends everybody out. It's a private thing. There's this humble reliance upon God, this humility that we see in Peter as he does this. The second thing that I notice about this is just the tenderness and warmth that we actually see here. You see him reaching out and taking her hand. It's almost as if he sort of whispers to her. You know? So he just very simply says, Tabitha, arise. She opens her eyes. You see, she sees him, looks at him. Imagine she was a little bit confused at that moment with happening. Very graciously then, probably helps her up, walks her out and presents her alive. Now, what's interesting about this event is that it's very similar to that which we see with Ananias in that it was much more private than what we've seen in the other healings. So again, just like Aeneas, this is a very private healing and it takes place among a believer. But just like it did with Aeneas, the healing of Tabitha here has this huge evangelistic impact. 
Take a look at verse 40, verses 42 and 43. It became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. These are neat stories. I always hate referring to them that way because it's history. It isn't just a story. We trust that these things actually happened. But we know what the scripture is that it isn't just showing us the miraculous. It's to teach us something. The question is, what do we learn from this? What's the practical application for us? That's where the challenge is, and that's what I've struggled with most of the week. Here's some things. There are some in Christendom who promote the false teaching that believers should not suffer with sickness or disease or hardship, that if you just have enough faith, you should be healed, and they turn to passages like this. Great example! Peter raised Aeneas. He raised Tabitha from the dead. We shouldn't suffer. Jesus died. His stripes have healed us. We should never suffer. They often turn to stuff like this to prove their point. But here's the thing. There's no single Bible passage that when properly interpreted promises that every believer will be healed or raised up. So it's a mistake to preach that from this passage. We have examples in the Bible where people are healed like this. We see Jesus raise people from the dead. Jesus healed people. But there are times Jesus even left people unhealed. There were times where he went off by himself when there were plenty of people back waiting to be healed. But Jesus needed time with the Lord. He didn't heal everybody all the time. So we have examples, even like the Apostle Paul, who weren't healed, but rather they were given the grace to endure. So the question that I have as I look at this is, so why does God heal some like Aeneas and raise some like Tabitha from the dead? Why did Jesus heal some, but not everyone? Why in our world today does God miraculously heal some, but not others? Amy and I have a friend who um, was it um, diagnosed with cancerous tumors, Amy, um, but then MRI ended up, what, a short time later, everything disappeared. They had no idea what happened to them. They were convinced because they had the images before and they had the images afterwards. I don't remember all the details of it, but there are things like that even today where God miraculously does heal some. Why does he heal some? and not others. One obvious purpose in God healing is to provide comfort and relief for those who are suffering. Aeneas experienced that. There was a benefit to him. The Lord relieved him of his suffering. Tabitha, the Lord actually brought her back to life so she could continue ministering to those around her. He brought comfort to those around her that relied upon her. I think about the widows who benefited from her ministry. And so he relieved their suffering as well. And so I think about the raising of Lazarus from the dead and Mary and Martha and the relief of their suffering by Jesus raising him from the dead. And so clearly one purpose that God heals some is to provide the relief or the comfort for them. 
However, there's a greater and more primary purpose in the healings that we see in the scriptures. Ultimately, the Lord uses healing to glorify himself. We see that in this passage here. The reason Peter says, And as Jesus raises you. Now we don't see him say that, but you clearly know based on the context here that as Jesus presented Tabitha, it was well known that Jesus had raised Tabitha from the dead. Peter would not have taken credit for it. And so clearly, one of the other purposes, the reasons why God heals people, is to glorify himself, to reveal himself, his power, his compassion. But we also see in the scriptures that healings are used to authenticate both the messenger and the message of the gospel. When Jesus would go out and heal, it authenticated him as the Son of God. It's amazing how much people might listen when they see the miraculous, right? So so to authenticate the messenger of the gospel, whether that be Jesus Christ or the apostles, the Lord used miraculous things like healings and raising people from the dead. One of the things that's interesting about this is um, in a few weeks we're going to see when Peter goes to Cornelius. When Peter shows up at Cornelius' house, the the Roman centurion Gentile, what, what he does is he actually, Cornelius, bows before Peter. And it's either that as the text says, he worshipped him, meaning he thought he might have been deity, which I don't think that's what the text implies. Some do. But there was something where he looked at Peter and recognized there was something unique about Peter in his relationship with the Lord. And it was because of the reputation Peter had because of being able to heal and other things. And so another reason why the Lord heals people is to authenticate the messenger and the message, the gospel. That's actually what we see in the text today. The Lord received the glory for healing Aeneas and Tabitha. Peter had his ministry authenticated and the message that he would preach authenticated by what the Lord did through him. Both of these miraculous events authenticated the gospel and led to people getting saved. The bigger picture here is that the Lord used these two events to lead people in Samaria and Galilee and the outer regions of Jerusalem to continue doing what he said he would do, which is to build his church. That's the greater picture here. It wasn't just about Aeneas. It wasn't just about Tabitha. It was about what the Lord would do through relieving them of their sufferings and their difficulties that he would use to continue to build his church, specifically in the region outside of Jerusalem. So maybe the primary takeaway from this is that while not everyone is healed, when God does heal, he does it to glorify himself and to build his kingdom. Which makes me think of something else as it's related to this. What about those who aren't healed? You know, as I said, some would teach just have enough faith. The Lord promises healing for everybody. And wouldn't it make sense to us? Why doesn't the Lord just heal everybody if healing does these things? If it glorifies God, if it relieves suffering, if it builds his kingdom, if it authenticates the messenger and the message, why doesn't God just do it for everybody all the time? In other words, a little bit is nice, but a lot is really great. But he doesn't do that. And so we have to ask the question, why? I'm sure that there were others in Lydda 
There might have been others in Joppa. Other believers who probably were sick and suffering. Did Peter go and heal them? We don't have any indication of that. Maybe he did some, maybe he didn't. Luke probably doesn't record everything that happened, but we really don't know, but it's probably doubtful. Because the Lord didn't call Peter, James, John, Philip, Stephen, Paul, just run around and start setting up a healing ministry. We're told that they were called to preach the gospel, preach the resurrection of Christ. The healings, the miracles, were side issues used to authenticate them and their message. So why doesn't God just do that for everybody? I want to maybe help us focus a little bit on a couple last things. I think about what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Why don't you turn there with me? 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Starting at verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, meaning Paul is just described being having this vision of heaven. He, Paul was taken up into the heavens, he says, seeing things that he couldn't speak about. And he says in verse 7, Because of these things, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. Some physical ailment, we don't know what it was. But it was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. In other words, he prayed, Lord, heal me. Three times. Take away this torment, this thorn that I have, this physical ailment. Verse 9, But he, the Lord, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. In other words, Paul got a big fat no. Paul, I'm not going to heal you. Why? Because my grace is sufficient for you. But he goes on, he says, For power is perfected in weakness. Paul then goes on to say, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses. In other words, weaknesses there is a reference back to his physical ailment. So that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distress, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I have become foolish, you yourselves compelled me. In other words, he goes on now and he says, you're making me boast. But what is Paul boasting about here? What he's essentially said here is that the Lord did not heal me. And it's because the Lord is trying to manifest in me his power, and it's only through my weakness that I can realize and see that. And so one of the ways that God is glorified is by revealing his power, his grace in us, when we struggle physically and we're not healed. That is just as glorifying to Christ as healing somebody is. But there's an added benefit to it. Paul says he was able to experience, in fact, he boasted about the Lord's power in him as a result of his weakness. The Lord chose not to heal Paul because his purpose was to reveal to Paul and reveal to Paul's audiences his power expressed through the weaknesses of Saul. I know people who struggle physically 
who love the Lord dearly. And I can see the power of Christ in them. In spite of that weakness. You know, James actually tells us, go to chapter 1, that there's a value and a purpose in struggling. James chapter 1. Something at verse 2. You all know this passage. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. I think physical suffering would fit into that, don't you? Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why? Knowing, another way to translate that is because you know. And it's a word that implies knowing based on your own personal experience. Because you know, part of your own experience is that the testing of your faith, the trying of your faith, produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be what? Perfect and complete. Lacking in nothing. Sometimes the Lord doesn't heal because the purpose of allowing us to struggle through that ailment is to perfect our faith. That is just as glorifying to the Lord as healing somebody. It's perfecting their faith. Amy and I, um, Amy's got a very close friend who we pray for almost weekly here, who struggles tremendously. She's got chronic Lyme, struggles tremendously, but radiates faith in Christ. And you can see how the Lord has used this struggle to continue to work on her. That's glorifying to him. And it has the benefit of making us perfect and complete, lacking nothing in our relationship with Christ. I would argue based on that, the alternative would be if God did not do that, we'd be immature in our faith. We'd be lacking. But his goal is that we wouldn't lack anything. Peter refers to something similar. You can turn your on your own at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 about the suffering of Christ and and it being somewhat temporary and how it will ultimately make our faith perfect so that we can stand before Christ perfect and complete. One last thing I want to turn to, Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. Philippians chapter 4. Listen to what Paul says. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last... You have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you had concern before, but you lacked opportunity to share it. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Do you think Paul had to think about that in his daily suffering, his physical ailment, to learn to be content with that? Of course. He says in verse 12, I know how to get along with humble means and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance I have learned, get this he says, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. What is the secret that he learned to be able to deal with being hungry or being filled or having abundance or suffering need or having physical pain and suffering or being healthy? What's the secret? You guys all know this verse, but have you seen it in this light? The secret is, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the secret. That's what Paul learned 
by having to suffer. That he could do anything through Christ. Total dependence on the Lord. So as I look at our passage today, I see a number of things. One is, it's just amazing to see what God can do through the man Peter. The miraculous things he was able to do and the grace and compassion he showed to Aeneas who's bedridden. What, a, what an amazing thing that must have been for him to experience that. His pain and suffering was relieved by, by Christ. The miraculous thing of literally being able to raise somebody from the... When Jesus told the, the apostles, you'll do even greater things, I wonder how many of them thought, I might get the opportunity to raise somebody from the dead just like Jesus. These are neat things. They tell us a lot about God, about, about Christ, and about his love and his compassion for those who do suffer. But, even beyond that, we have to recognize that sometimes God chooses not to heal because it glorifies him, it builds our faith, it helps him show us his power through our weaknesses, helps us be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. All of these things ultimately serve to glorify him and to build up his body, the church. Does it not? Those are miraculous things. I'm going to go ahead and just um, leave it with that and let you guys chew on that and see what else the Lord might teach you to do with these things.